The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the hairiest beast of them all. Tammy, the vagina monster Underwood. <laughs> Hi, everybody. You know, I think I... You're almost to your 30 of the I hate you's already, and it's only noon. <laughs> I got to work hard, man. If you don't say I hate you at least 20, 30, 40 times a day, I start thinking something's wrong, like your diet. I know. I know. I know. And, or I get text saying, you okay, fucker? <laughs> you okay, fucker? <laughs> you okay, fucker? <laughs> yeah. So, hi, everybody. All right. So, we're going to do, let's just jump right into it. This is part two of the Atlanta yes. child murders. Yes. And... Uh, now, has Wayne Williams been captured yet? Not yet. Okay. But he was finally linked to one of the victims. You know, the um, Larry Rogers, no relation to Patman Rogers. Or Buck Rogers. <laughs> the 20th, 21st century? That's right. <laughs> okay. Or Mr. Rogers and his neighborhood. Dude, I love Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Mr. Rogers is great to watch when you're high. When you're higher than giraffe pussy, you watch some Mr. Rogers. I took a I took a selfie one time as I was doing my makeup to show somebody my eyeliner. And I go, oh, my God, I look like that old lady puppet from Mr. Rogers. And she goes, no, you don't. I said, yes, same, same. And I showed her a picture. She goes, I don't see it. I go, I totally see it. But, you know. See, boys and girls, she looks like a puppet. Isn't that a good thing? I think it is. Oh, boy, why don't we get into the episode? Can we do that, boys and girls? <laughs> I think we can. Anyways. Okay, so now we're, you know, because now the victims are in their early. Oh, my goodness. Now the victims are in their early. What are you doing over there, wackadoo? Mind your business. This is why there's a wall between us. You can't see me. I'm partying. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Dude, anyways, he's just being weird today. Um. So now the victims are in their 20s. Okay, right from seven, as young as seven to their mid teens. Now they're twenties. But that's part of evolving as a serial killer, right? You know, but within the same year. I mean, like from seventy nine to eighty one. Yeah, he's just he's evolving. You know, well, the serial killers, because I'm convinced it's got to be more. I think there's more than one. I do. Now, 23-year-old ex-convict Michael McIntosh was last seen on March 25th, 1981 by a shop owner who said that he had been, said that Michael had been beaten up. The store owner said McIntosh told him two black men roughed him up and he was never seen alive again. Now, he had connections to other victims in this case. He actually lived across the street from Captain Jack Pegg's Seafood Restaurant where JoJo worked. Okay. In fact, he knew Jojo Bell. And like Jojo, McIntosh had been known to hang around with homosexuals, and it was believed that he was also one. Hold on right there, girl. Why has everything got to be about the homosexuals, okay? I'm offended. Just because you're gay doesn't mean you're, you're a killer. What a whore. Just over there making fun of you know, people that just because they're gay and everything. Jesus Christ. Anyways, he had been seen several Talk times. Man, whore. At Tom Terrell's house, a house that both Jojo Bell and Timothy Hill had often frequented. Now, McIntosh was pulled from the Chattahoochee River in April 1981. He, too, died from probable asphyxia, according to the medical examiner. 
Man, it, Ma- sounds, it sounds like everybody's getting all choked up. <laughs> yep, in Atlanta. <laughs> in Atlanta. That's fucked. That's a bad joke. That God, was so, a bad, bad joke. I apologize joke. to all the families of the victims. <laughs> Before you want to sue me, I apologize. That was horrible. Yeah. So Macintosh had known another list victim named Nathaniel Cater, who would disappear a month later. Now, John Porter, like Macintosh, was an ex-convict. He spent much of his time with his grandmother, with whom he lived with on and off. She had kicked him out of the house on several occasions because of his strange behavior. He'd been suffering from severe mental problems and had spent a length of time in a mental hospital. He was kicked out shortly before he had disappeared because his grandmother found him fondling a two-year-old boy she was caring for in her home. He was 28 when he was found dead in April of 1981. He had been stabbed six times and left on a sidewalk in an empty lot. Now, Porter originally did not make the list until the Wayne Williams trial when he and Williams were linked through fiber matches. Now, 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne had also disappeared that same month at the same month as Porter. Police reports stated that his sister last saw him the day before his disappearance. He had shared an apartment with his sister and mother. His sister told police that he was on his way to sell old coins at a coin shop. However, Payne's girlfriend had claimed to see him the very day he had supposedly disappeared. She told jurors that he had walked her to the bus stop the morning of April 22nd. She had become worried when he did not pick her up from the bus stop and they had pl- as they had planned to meet. Payne had been known to suffer bouts of depression, especially during his incarceration while serving a sentence for burglary. Payne at one time had attempted to hang himself with his bed sheets, yet failed to succeed when a social worker found him. He survived that one brush of death, but would not live for long afterwards. Payne was found a week after his disappearance floating in the Chattahoochee River. Let me guess, cause of death? Asphyxia. Undetermined, actually. Oh, According okay. to the medical examiner, his belief that he had been in the water almost the entire length of time he'd been missing. Oh, brutal, man. Yeah. That's fucked up. Now, Willie... No, William Barrett, Billy Starr, was a 17-year-old juvenile delinquent when he had vanished in May of 1981. He vanished on his way to pay a bill for his mother. The following day, his body was found close to his home. He had been strangled and stabbed. The medical examiner reported that the stabbing occurred after Billy died from strangulation. So earlier police reports stated that threats by a, quote, hitman had been made against Barrett. Barrett had also been connected to a white man previously convicted of pedophilia. The same man was also said to have known list victim Luby Geeter. A witness had seen Geeter on several occasions as the suspect's apartment. The same man had also been witnessed at Barrett's funeral. Now, ex-convict Nathaniel Cater was 27 years old when he became the last victim to make the list. He had lived in the same apartment building as Latanya Wilson. It is unknown as to exactly when Cater disappeared. What authorities did know was that he was an admitted homosexual prostitute, drug dealer, and alcoholic. A witness who had been no- who had known the suspect in the death of who had known the suspect in the death of Clifford Jones said Cater had. Uh, admitted to selling himself his blood at the blood bank and dope in exchange for money. Now, according to Detlinger, the author who wrote the book, um, an ex-police officer, public safety commissioner, and consultant for the U.S. Justice Department led a voluntary investigation into the Atlanta murders beginning from 1980 and continuing until Wayne Williams' incarceration. 
Mount Detlinger volunteered his services first to the police who refused him and later to the mothers who accepted his help to try and put an end to the murders. Detlinger's team teamed up with Dick Arena, an ex-crime analyst and private investigators. Oh, did you just say Dick Arena? <laughs> Dick Arena, yes. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> I saw that porn too. That is like that is not a name. That is the title of a movie. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to, to the, the Dick, Dick Arena. Arena. <laughs> the home of original cockfighting. <laughs> Cock wranglers. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and private investigators Bill Taylor and Mike Edwards, along with the help of other volunteers to assist in the investigation. Now, Detlinger and his group of volunteers completed much of the legwork the police didn't do, including going door to door in the neighborhoods where victims lived and disappeared, asking questions and seeking leads and connections into the murders. What Detlinger discovered was a definite pattern, including all of the victims on the list and many victims who never made the list. Now, Detlinger's findings were significant in that they recognized a social and geographic pattern between the victims. During the peak of the Atlanta murders, he was able to predict with a degree of accuracy where victims would disappear and be found. Task force agents and police who refused to acknowledge any connections among the cases, either geographic or social, at one point suspected he him in the murders. However, he was quickly released when authorities realized the information and knowledge Detlinger had and which they lacked came from their own incompetence, misassimilation of information, and mismanagement with the handling of the investigation. The FBI later used Detlinger as an expert consultant, realizing that he knew more vital facts concerning the investigation than the Atlanta Police Department did. Nice. Right? Now, Detlinger first began his map of murder victims in the summer of 1980 who had initially made the list. However, he quickly discovered that there were many people that the police had left off that were worth examination. Detlinger's list of victims had well outnumbered the task force list. Several of those victims who had been first ignored by the task force agents, such as Aaron Weish and Patrick Rogers, had made Detlinger's list soon after their disappearance. Some of those names were later added by task force agents due to increasing pressure by Detlinger, who was able to provide them with information they lacked that allowed them to later connect the cases. Now, Detlinger mapped out the precise location of where the victims had lived, where they disappeared, and where they had been found. By doing this, he discovered that the victims were connected to Memorial Drive and 11 other major streets centered in that area. Detlinger had also recognized that the murders moved in an eastward direction. After Patrick Rogers' death, the victims that were found were older and their bodies were disposed of further outside city limits. However, Detlinger and Prue are quoted in their book, The List, as saying, The streets didn't change, but it was necessary only to extend the streets on the map, not add new ones. Even those Chattahoochee and South River findings would occur at bridges carrying one of the streets on the map. Therefore, the parameters basically remain the same despite the ages of the victims. Okay? All right. But this just, this just goes back to what we talked about in the Portland case. How the police weren't investigating until somebody else went out there and did the legwork for them. Right. And, and it wasn't until we started releasing episodes about their incompetence mm-hmm. that they said, oh, no, we're investigating. Really? What have you guys done? Um, Nothing. Nothing. Right. So it happened in the early morning hours of Friday, May 22nd, 1981 at the James Daxon Parkway Bridge that crossed over the Chattahoochee River where previous bodies had been found. 
Two police officers were staked out on the bridge in an effort to monitor suspicious activities. Now, Officer Freddie Jacobs was stationed at the Fulton County side or southern part of the bridge, while Officer Bob Campbell was stationed beneath the bridge at the northerly Cobb County side of the bridge. Now, Officer Jacobs saw the headlights of a car approaching southbound over the bridge. At about that same time, Officer Campbell heard a car driving over the bridge. Campbell heard a splash in the water. It was a splash that sent ripples around the world and marked the beginning of one of the most famous trials in recent times. According to Officer Jacobs, he had seen a car's headlights as it was driving over the bridge and was soon after radioed by his colleague Campbell, who told him that he heard a loud splash in the water. Jacobs recognized the slow-moving vehicle as a white 1970 Chevy station wagon. He watched as the vehicle drove over the bridge into Fulton County, where there stood in view, where there stood in view a liquor store. He watched as the car turned around and recrossed the bridge. At the liquor store, a veteran Atlanta police officer named Carl Holden was on watch for sus- suspicious activity when he spotted the station wagon. He had followed it as it crossed the bridge into Cobb County. Now, according to Campbell, he heard a loud splash, unlike the sound that some of the river animals made when they dove in the water and noticing ripples in the water made from whatever had landed in the river. He saw a car standing on the bridge. Then the car turned its headlights on above the area where he had heard the splash and had seen the ripples. He then radioed FBI agent Greg Gilliland, Gilliland. Another great name. I know. Who pulled the car over almost a half mile from the bridge. Holden had still been following the car from behind when it was pulled over. The driver's station wagon was Wayne Williams. Now, Williams, almost 23 years old, was a freelance photographer and music promoter who said he was traveling across the bridge to find the home of a potential client with whom he had an appointment several hours later. He told the police the woman's name was Cheryl Johnson and that he intended to audition her with the possibility of promoting her as a singer. However, agents did not believe his story, particularly when the phone number was incorrect and the address did not exist. Williams allowed the authorities to search the car. For over an hour, he was questioned about what he was doing on the bridge and his reason for being there. Several hours later, officers dragged the Chattahoochee River around the bridge, but they found no evidence of a body. The next day, police again questioned Williams and began to realize that they were dealing with the most unusual man. Now, Wayne Williams was born on May 27, 1958. He was the only child of school teachers Homer and Faye Williams. The Williams family lived in Dixie Hills, a neighborhood where many of the Atlanta murder victims had once lived or from where they disappeared. His parents doted on him and spent every cent they had supporting his entrepreneurial ventures. From a young age, Williams dreamed of making it big in broadcasting and entertainment industry. A talented and motivated young man, Williams began his own radio station at the age of 16 from his parents' home. He graduated from Frederick Douglass High School with an honors degree and attended Georgia State University for one year before he dropped out. In his late teens, he worked for a popular radio station and appeared in Jet Magazine along with his employer, Benjamin Hooks, an influential black leader at the time who eventually headed the NAACP. William spent much of his time marketing his own station and promoting local music, musical talent, performing odd jobs to fund his ideas and experimenting with electronics, which was his hobby. Williams had also sold video footage and photographs of area accidents such as fires, car accidents, and even one plane crash to local television stations to earn money. 
He would hear about many of the accidents from his police radio scanner, which allowed him to make it to scenes of accidents sometimes before the police arrived. Now, Wayne's dream was to find the next Jackson 5 or Stevie Wonder and ride that talent to fame and wealth as their promoter and manager. He spent much of his time talent scouting among black youth and recording the works of the boys he believed had promise. Unfortunately, he did not have the ear to select musicians with enough talent to make it commercially. Nonetheless, he continued to spend his parents into bankruptcy, creating expensive demo recordings of boys with mediocre abilities. Wayne was known around town as a pathological liar and a bullshitter, suggesting that he had major record deals cooking and knew the right people to make it big. Socially, Wayne lived with his parents and had few friends. Bernard Heedley tells him an interesting aspect of Wayne's life that is typical behavior of serial killers. He said he had acquired, for instance, an uncanny ability to impersonate a police officer. This practice got him into trouble back in 1976 when he was arrested in the city but never convicted for impersonating a police officer and unauthorized use of a vehicle. The vehicle had been illegally equipped with red lights beneath the grill and flashing blue dashboard lights. There were rumors that he was homosexual, but nothing substantiated them. Detlinger says that in the days immediately following the event on the bridge, Wayne and his father did a major cleanup job around their house. They carried out boxes and carted them off in the station wagon. They burned negatives and photographic prints in the outdoor grill. Ain't nothing like suspicious behavior, right? Nah, nah. Everybody does that, don't they? Yeah. Only you. No, I burn midgets. My hands fell asleep. On May 24, 1981, the nude body of Nathaniel Cater, who had disappeared a few days earlier, was discovered in the Chattahoochee River. The medical examiner had once again documented the cause of death as... Strangulation asphyxiation. Probable asphyxia, yes. Yeah. He was unable to establish the time frame in which Cater had expired. Therefore, it was not really known exactly how Cater had died or when, but only that he had stopped breathing for some unknown reason. The medical examiner... Uh, Obliged the police by stating that Cater had been dead just long enough for Wayne Williams to have thrown him off the bridge several days earlier. Based on the discovery of the body and the splash from the bridge, police theorized that Williams had killed Nathaniel Cater and had thrown him off the bridge the night they had pulled him over. Interestingly, four witnesses later came forward to the police saying they saw Cater alive after Williams supposedly threw his body from the bridge. This critical He's information. A zombie. I know. This critical information was not shared with Williams' lawyers, though. The authorities monitored Williams' actions on a continuous basis while they got the necessary search warrants for his home and cars. Throughout the string of murders, a large number of fibers had been found on the various bodies of the victims, and the FBI wanted to determine if any of those fibers from Wayne Williams' environment matched the fibers taken from the murder victims. Also, a few victims had dog hair on them, so samples of their hair from Wayne Williams' dogs were taken for comparison. So when the FBI took Williams in for questioning without a lawyer, they grilled him about his activities on the night of the bridge incident. Williams told them he played basketball that afternoon at the Ben Hill Recreation Center and then went home. Later in the afternoon, Williams said he got a call from a woman who called herself Cheryl Johnson who wanted to audition for him. She supposedly gave him a phone number and address in Smyrna? Smyrna? Smyrna. Oh, see, you would know. And arranged to meet Williams at her apartment at 7 a.m. the following morning. He said he stayed at home until he went to the Sans, Sans Sushi Lounge. Okay. Uh, I guess. 
after midnight to pick up his tape recorder from the manager. He said that he left the lounge when the manager was too busy to see him. Then he told the FBI that he was going to look for Cheryl Johnson's apartment and drove around Smyrna looking for the Spanish Trace Apartments, in which she said she lived. When he couldn't find the apartments, he said he stopped at a liquor store and called the phone number she gave him, but the number was busy. Later, he stopped again to call her, but that time the phone rang without an answer. Then Williams drove out to the Jackson Parkway Bridge and went to a starving Marvin to call Cheryl Johnson again. This time, Williams claimed someone did answer but said it was the wrong number. So then Williams said he went back toward the bridge when the officers stopped him for questioning. Now, some of the problems with Williams' story were that the Cheryl Johnson part was hard to believe and the claims to have been at the Ben Hill Recreation Center and the San Suchi before the bridge incident were false. When the authorities checked, they could find no Cheryl Johnson, no Spanish Trace Apartments, and the phone number for her was bogus. The FBI gave Wayne Williams three separate polygraph tests, all of which indicated he was being deceptive in his answers. Williams surprised everybody when he suddenly called a news conference at his home and handed reporters a lengthy resume, much of which was exaggerated and some of which was false. He told the media that he was innocent and that the authorities were just trying to find a scapegoat. This was the beginning of a huge continuous media event outside the Williams home, which went on for quite some time. Now, during that time, FBI laboratories claimed that they were coming up with a number of matches between the fibers found on the victims and the fibers from Williams' home and cars. Also, the labs claimed similarity between the dog hairs on the victims and hair from Williams' dog. The FBI was very excited about the fiber and dog hair evidence, but the district attorney of Fulton County, Louis Slayton, was not impressed. He did not want to prosecute a case on fiber evidence alone. This was such a major case and fiber evidence could be very confusing and unsatisfying to a jury. He wanted more traditional evidence, such as eyewitnesses, fingerprints, etc. It it's entirely, it's entirely possible that Slayton may not have been thrilled to have the FBI telling him what to do in his own county. It was, after all, Atlanta Mayor Maynard Jackson who, in desperation, had brought in the feds, not Slayton. Now, several things helped persuade Slayton to finally go after Wayne Williams. One, a number of witnesses materialized who swore they saw Wayne, saw Wayne Williams with various victims. Hard to say why they had not come forward before since none of the task force documents included a note on Wayne Williams. Williams had not been a suspect until the bridge incident. Two, a couple of recording studio people claimed to have been have seen serious looking cuts and scratches on Williams' arms suggesting the potential of a struggle with the boy victims. And number three, pressure by Governor Georgia Governor George Busby to play ball with the feds. Now, on dang so that was on June 21st Williams lawyer Mary Mary welcome Okay squatch welcome <laughs> Her name is welcome. Mary welcome and two These names get better and better No and two county policemen went to Williams home with the arrest warrant Interestingly Wayne Williams was indicted for the murder of two adults Jimmy Payne and Nathaniel Cater however Georgia law allows that the prosecution can bring into court evidence from other cases if it could be proven that those other cases were part of a pattern that was how Slayton would tie in the murders of the children an activity that would create controversy for years now Mary Wilkin was a popular black attorney a former city solicitor 
and was the first lo- first lawyer on Wayne Williams' defense team. Initially, she chose Tony Axum, an experienced attorney on major cases, to complement her skills. However, Williams fired Axum and Mary replaced him with with Alvin Binder, a capable but abrasive white lawyer from Mississippi. Now, Judge Clarence Cooper, the first black judge elected to the Fulton County bench, had been an assistant district attorney for a number of years and was a protege of district attorney and prosecutor Lewis Slayton. Interestingly, Fulton County announced that a computer program randomly selected a black judge who just happened to be pals with the prosecution to be the judge on Wayne Williams' trial. Jack Mallard was the most active member of Slayton's prosecution team. Now, one very controversial situation was that in the case of Jimmy Payne, the Fulton County Medical Examiner had written that the cause of death was undetermined. That is, it was not determined that Payne was, in fact, murdered. Recognizing the difficulty in prosecuting Williams for a death that was not clearly a homicide, the medical examiner examiner conveniently changed his document to indicate homicide. Now, Detlinger points out that when confronted with the change in the death certificate, which subsequently allowed for Wayne Williams to be indicted in the Jimmy Payne case, the medical examiner said he checked the wrong box on the death certificate. However, there is no box to check on the death certificate, only a place to type the word undetermined or homicide. See, that's a mistrial right there. Yeah, you would think. Automatic mistrial, man. I know, huh? I think my brother Wayne, he he, he was framed. Framed, framed, framed. He was framed. Okay. Let's see here. Where was I? Oh, the trial began on December 28, 1981. The jury was composed of nine women and three men. Eight jurors were black and four were white. They were sequestered for the duration of the trial. Opening arguments began the first week of January 1982. The defense team was severely handicapped by lack of funds and woefully insufficient time to interview hundreds of prosecution witnesses. They did not have the money to employ the quality of expert witnesses to rebuke the vast laboratory findings of the FBI and Georgia Crime Bureau. Uh, Furthermore, the body of forensic evidence on fibers was an order of magnitude greater than what the defense had expected. The cornerstone of the prosecution case was the fiber evidence, which was highly technical and carried with it the prestige of the FBI labs. To successfully cast doubt on the fiber evidence, expensive, very high caliber expert testimony would have been required, and his defense team simply didn't have that kind of funds. Also, even though the defense team knew that the prosecution was going to bring in other cases besides the deaths of Cater and Payne, they didn't know how many and which cases would be introduced. For a detent. Defense team short on time and short on money. This was a problem. Detlinger, who was on the defense team, states, During the trial, we didn't know who the next witness presented by the state would be or what he or she would be testifying about. The Brady Files is the body of information collected by the police and other forensic experts that points towards the innocence of the accused. By law, the prosecution must turn those Brady files over to the defense before the trial begins. Right, for discovery. Right. That's what I was going to say. Didn't they have that in the 70s? I thought they did, but all right. The arbiter of what would be included in the Brady files and when it would be turned over was Judge Clarence Cooper, the DA's former protege. (laughs) Not surprisingly, the Brady files were withheld until the last possible minute. 
For example, 39-year-old Jimmy Anthony was a neighbor who had known Nathaniel Cater and claimed to have seen him on the morning of May 23rd, the day after Williams was pulled over, supposedly throwing his body, Cater's body off the bridge. Anthony said Cater told him that he had found a new job. One might suspect that Anthony was mistaken about the time that he had last seen Cater. Yet three other witnesses, one who had known Cater well, had also seen him after the bridge incident. Not one of these witnesses would later have a chance to testify in the Williams case. The jury would not be informed of the four witnesses who had seen Nathaniel Cater, as well as many other important suspects and witnesses connected with the case that would have cast doubt on Williams' guilt. Regarding the time of death of Nathaniel Cater, the defense brought in its own expert who lost credibility when he announced that Cater had been in the water for at least two weeks. Cater had not even been missing for two weeks. A similar thing happened when the defense expert estimated Jimmy Payne's death. Now, the Atlanta Public Safety Commissioner, Lee Brown, had always maintained throughout the investigation that there was no pattern in the murders. Ironically, it was during Brown's testimony that Jack Mallard introduced the pattern that would allow evidence in 10 other cases to be introduced, in addition to evidence in the Cater and Payne deaths. The pattern became the key enabler for evidence to be used by the state against Williams, especially when linking similar fibers. Furthermore, the Cater and Payne cases standing alone were extremely weak and the introduction of evidence from each of the 10 pattern cases strengthened their case by providing, among many things, eyewitnesses and most importantly, fiber connections amongst some of the victims. The 10 pattern cases were Alfred Evans, Eric Middlebricks, Charles Stevens, William Barrett, Terry Pugh, John Porter, Levy Geeter, Joseph Bell, Patrick Balthazar, and Larry Rogers. The characteristics that formed the pattern amongst the victims were listed by the prosecution as black male, missing clothing, no car, poor families, no evidence of forced abduction, broken home, no apparent motive for disappearance, defendant claims no contact, asphyxia by strangulation, no valuables, body found near expressory ramp or major artery, street hustlers, body disposed of in an unusual manner, transported before or after death, and similar fibers. Now, there was a great deal of controversy concerning the prosecution's pattern. Furthermore, in one if one looked closely into each of the cases, it would be noticeable that several of them did not fit the pattern invented by the prosecution. For example, not all of the victims were found near accessory ramps or major arteries. It is unknown whether all the victims were transported before or after they were killed based on lack of evidence, and only six of the pattern cases showed evidence of strangulation. Therefore, the pattern the prosecution describes is inaccurate. But Judge Cooper, former prosecutor, accepted the pattern anyways. Now, the prosecution focused its effort on four key areas. The character and credibility of Wayne Williams, what happened on the Jackson Parkway Bridge, eyewitnesses to Wayne Williams' behavior and alleged interaction with victims, and the physical evidence, which was primarily based on fibers, hairs, and bloodstains found on victims that matched elements of Wayne's environment. Now, what I think went against Wayne Williams is that calling of that press conference. No, I agree. I mean, because that was reminiscent of you know ward weaver the third you know yeah so so while wayne williams did not have a criminal record his character was not exactly unblemished in the eyes of those who knew him most people knew wayne williams as a person who either lied about or vastly exaggerated his accomplishments as an example 
you're going to love this name, Eustace Blakely, a successful black businessman, and his wife were friends of Wayne. Wayne told Blakely that he flew fighter jets at Dobbins Air Force Base. Blakely knew that that was a lie because he had been in the Air Force and was not able to fly planes because he wore glasses. Wayne Williams' eyes were much worse than Blakely's. But the real showstopper during the trial was what his wife had to say about Wayne. She had asked Williams after he had become a suspect, if they get enough evidence, will you confess before you get hurt? She said that he answered yes. So then she then went on to say that Wayne told her he could knock out black street kids in a few minutes by putting his hand on their necks. On cross-examination, Binder asked her if she implied that Wayne had killed someone. She answered, yes, I do. I really feel that Wayne Williams did kill somebody, and I'm sorry. Gino Jordan, who ran the San Suchi Club, was asked if Wayne Williams had been at his club before the bridge incident, as Williams had told authorities he had been. Now, Jordan said it was not that night of the bridge incident, but the following night that Williams came by the club to pick up his tape recorder. The club cashier confirmed Jordan's statement. When the man in charge of the Ben Hill Recreation Center was asked if Wayne Williams was playing basketball the evening of the bridge incident, as Williams had claimed, the answer again was no. These two testimonies reflected that Wayne Williams was lying about what he did before the incident on the bridge. This lack of an alibi played right into the prosecution's theory that Williams was with Cater that evening and dropped his body off the bridge. What Williams was left with were a bunch of lies about what he did before the bridge incident and an explanation about what he was doing on the bridge that nobody believed. Attempts to find the mysterious Cheryl Johnson led most people to believe that she was non-existent. Now, later into the trial, the prosecution presented a group of eyewitnesses who claimed they saw Wayne Williams with various victims or that the eyewitnesses verified that Cater was alive the afternoon of the bridge incident. Examples of this eyewitness testimony included Lou Jean Laster. These names. <laughs> it's almost like you're reading a fictitious story. And the author said, let me, let me get into the bucket of just names that are fucked up. And we'll just pull out anything. Let's put two things together. Uh, and then 29-year-old Dog McWoof Woof uh, <laughs> Laserback. <laughs> so, he, Lou Jean Laster. <laughs> Lou Jean, baby. <laughs> L.A. lady. Who saw JoJo Bell get into a Chevy station wagon driven by a man he identified as Wayne Williams. Then Robert Henry, who knew Cater, claimed he saw Cater and Williams holding hands the evening of the bridge incident. Oh, how romantic. Also, a couple of views claimed Williams made sexual advances towards them. One of the most significant and controversial moments of the trial occurred during arguments and testimony concerning the linkage of similar fiber amongst the 10 pattern cases to Cater and Payne's murder. Investigators found on the bodies of the murdered victims fibers that were similar in appearance to carpet fibers found in Wayne Williams' home and automobile. In total, there were 28 fiber types linked to 19 items from the house, bedroom, and vehicles. Of interest to the prosecution were the trilobal fibers, which the state contended were a rare variety. What is a trilobal fiber? Um, that's the one that has the three like points. Oh, oh, okay. Like they found in uh, what's well, his name? Hold on. In in Wayne Williams' defense, though, you know they can find all these fibers that are similar to ones that are that that are around him, but 
people buy the same shit. It's not like I buy carpet that is just for me. You know what right. I mean? Like somebody else is going to buy carpet probably in the same color that right. it's going to be very similar to mine because you're going to buy it from the same place. Um, the same way with like, you know, the, the carpet in my truck. Right. You know, I'm pretty sure that most F-150s of the, my year making model have the same carpet. True. So, yeah, on the surface, it sounds like, God, oh, it's a lot of evidence. Really, it isn't. Well, keep in mind that it was the red trilobal fibers that convicted Bobby Joe Long, pretty much. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm just saying. Poor Bobby. Poor Bobby. He was framed. He was framed, too. Okay. Um, I'm loving it. I couldn't find out where it was. <laughs> so fiber analysts speculated that the fibers found on the victims were most likely transferred to the victims from contact with Williams' environment, thus connecting him to the murders. The prosecution contended that there were so many fiber matches between the Williams household and the victims that it was statistically impossible for the victims not to have been in the Williams' home and cars. Now, controversy arose when the state failed to tell the jury that most of the fibers found on the victims were not rare. In fact, such carpet fibers could be found in many apartment building complexes, See? businesses, and residential homes throughout the Atlanta region. Therefore, it would not be that unusual for the victims to come in contact with trilobal type fibers. There, were more, there was more controversy over the transference of such fibers. The state argued that fibers were transferred directly from Williams' environment to the victims. Therefore, one must assume that if fibers would be transferred from Williams' environment to the victims, then, victims from the, then fibers from the victims' clothing or environment would naturally be found on Williams or in his home or car, especially if they had been killed in his house or transported in his car, He's which framed. the state believed to have happened. Now they're Yet, lying. Lying about him. Yet absolutely no evidence of hair or fibers from the victims was found in his vehicle or his residence. See, this is what you would think. Okay, so assuming that, you know, like w with uh, with Decatur that he was on the bridge with, mm -hmm. uh, and they were holding hands. Let's say that they have, they're having their, their sounds a gay little relationship, right? Right. You would think that you would find some hair fibers. Right. In his vehicle or on his person or maybe even throughout his house in some of his clothes. Because it's hard to get busy and even make out without transferring some sort of fibers from your person. Like whether it be hair, which True. is most common, or something. But they don't True. find shit. Everything that, It sounds to me like everything that the cops have on him so far is all circumstantial. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm picking up too. I'm picking up what you're laying. I hear you chirping, big bird. I hear you chirping, big bird. Side note, there's a there's a uh, house that's really weird over here on P Street between 28th and 29th. They have like a minivan with a coffin strapped to the top of it. Oh, have so you seen that I house? I have not. Oh my gosh, you need to drive by it someday. Well, they have a truck out there that has a bunch of junk in it, and I saw it today, and I wanted to pull over and ask them if I could have it, but it was a big, big bird doll. Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> see, if I see a truck with, with junk all in it, I start thinking Sanford and Son. I know. So that was my little tangent because I just thought of that when you said Big Bird. But later in the trial, though, the state informed jurors that five blood stains had been found in the station wagon driven by Williams. Prosecutors claimed that the blood droplets matched in type and enzyme to the blood of victims 
William Barrett and John Porter. There was controversy among analysts as to the exact age of the droplets of blood found in the car. If the droplets occurred within an eight-week period, which one analysis believed, then it would have been likely that the blood came from Barrett and Porter, who had died within that period. However, another analyst testified that it was virtually impossible to date the stains, and if by any chance they had occurred outside of that eight-week time frame, then it was highly unlikely that the blood came from either victim. Now, keep in mind, this is before DNA, so, you know, early 80s. So when it came to the issue of motive, in the absence of any definitive evidence of sexual assault of the victims, the prosecution claimed that Wayne Williams hated black youth. Of course, this does not explain the murder of Nathaniel Cater, who was 27 years old, not really a youth, and several years older than Williams. Various people testified to remarks that Williams allegedly made over the years that criticized the behavior of black people and black youngsters in particular. Now, the defense called quite a number of witnesses. For example, they put the hydrologist on the stand that determined it was highly unlikely that the body of Nathaniel Cater had been thrown off the Parkway Bridge considering where Cater's body was found. The hydrologist was incensed that the county had pressured his colleague into changing his report to reflect just the opposite. Also, the defense presented an expert witness who testified that there was no indication that either Cater or Payne had been murdered. One of the two victims had an enlarged heart and could have died of natural causes. Both or either men could have simply drowned. Cater was known alcoholic and drug abuser. The defense also put on the stand a number of witnesses that either rebutted what prosecution witnesses said about where Williams was at a particular time or testified that Williams' behavior was strictly kosher with the boys who he tried to develop into musicians. Another witness was the police sketch artist who testified that none of the dozens of suspects that she was asked to sketch looked anything like Williams. A college student recruited by Williams for a singing job testified that William disliked homosexuals and expected that his client had a high standard of morals. Ow, sorry. Williams was put on the stand to defend himself against the charges in some of the eyewitness accounts. Also, he wanted to point out to the jury that he couldn't have quickly stopped the car on the bridge, opened up the back of the car, and hoisted Cater who was much larger and heavier than him, over the shoulder-high guard railings on the side of the bridge. The goal of William's testimony was to demonstrate to the jury that he did not have the temperament to commit murder. However, Jack Mallard repeatedly succeeded in making Williams visibly angry and provoking Williams into verbally insulting the government agents on the case. His show of temper had a big impact on the jury, a negative impact. His Williams defense team was unable to undo the damage that had been done, both by the state's case and the poor preparation of their own case. The prosecution had provided the jury with a mountain of evidence compared to what the defense had. Even though the quality of the evidence presented by the prosecution was doubtful, the sheer quantity of it seemed to overwhelm the jury. Furthermore, jurors never heard most of the exculpatory evidence from the Brady files that could have changed the outcome of the trial. Prosecutors withheld the files for as long as they legally could, which hardly allowed any time for the defense to prepare a strong case. 
Now, in January of 1982, Wayne Bertram Williams was found guilty for the murder of Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater. He's currently serving two life sentences. Following Williams' sentencing, the Atlanta police announced that 22 of the 29 murders were solved with the presumption that Wayne was responsible. But that was not the end of this case by any means. Okay, do we have more time? Yeah, yeah, about 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Uh, 10 minutes. Actually, let's close there. All right. Yeah, because I think I can finish up the rest of it in a in another episode. Groovy. All right, boys and girls. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Go on to the Book of the Faces and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Interact with us a little bit. <clears throat> Check out our Printify shop. Plenty of swag in there for you and the Sasquatch in your family. Nothing Sasquatch in your family? That's right. I'm pretty sure everybody's captured one by now. <laughs> We're a rare breed. No, Sasquatches aren't just for the Smithsonian anymore. It's amazing. It's especially, amazing. Especially when they're vagina monsters. This show's copyright 2023 <laughs> by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying, thieving bastards. bastards. And we'll talk to y'all later on. Bye-bye. Bye.